Hey there, you are listening to Today in Gaming Yesterday. I'm your host, Emma Pearl, and I am so excited for this week's episode. We are going to dig into August 2000, all the latest rumors, releases, what's going down in the video gaming world. We're wrapping up E3 coverage. We are digging a little bit into Camp Hyrule with Nintendo Power. We are learning all about Waluigi's big debut in the Mario Tennis world. And our deep dive this week is into the game Seaman on the Sega Dreamcast. If you've never heard of it, I'm so excited to teach you about it. If you have heard of it, I'm excited to tell you everything I learned that you probably don't know. So keep it locked. This is Today in Gaming Yesterday. Let's dig in. Let me take you back again. Oh, that, 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 that. Hello again, it's your girl Emma Pearl here. So excited to be bringing you this episode of Today in Gaming Yesterday from location uh, at my vacation that I'm on right now. Um, I am in Florida right now at the beach. I can see the ocean as I am filming this. It's super sunny today, uh, but I'm indoors digging into retro video gaming with you. And I hope you're excited because I'm really excited. This week was such a fun episode to research to dig into. I found so, so, so much about this week's deep dive. I cannot wait to tell you everything about it. Um, in case you missed it, you can follow the podcast on Twitter. You can rate, review, subscribe everywhere that you get your podcast. You can also subscribe on YouTube. We are striving ever forward towards that 100 subscriber mark. So we can get a custom URL for the podcast on YouTube. So if you're interested in helping out with that, um, you go to link, L-I-N-K, tr.ee slash t-i-g-y pod you can find all of that all of the links all of the episode guides and all of the pictures from all of the episodes um whenever i talk about a cool picture it's on twitter at t-i-g-y pod you can also follow me on twitter i'm at emma pearl here i also stream retro games on twitch a few times a week i am a we fit main as of late as per my necklace i made this week on vacation i'm so excited to dig back into it and honestly i'm probably going to turn into a sea man main as well if I can find a copy we'll dig more into that later but um the roadmap for this week's episode August 2000 we're gonna talk about the top 10 best-selling games as per GamePro four months into the future then we will dig into this month's issue of GamePro this month's issue of Nintendo Power and then our deep dive this week as mentioned one of the most interesting virtual pet games of all time if you've never heard of it I am so so excited to dig into it with you that's Seaman on the Sega Dreamcast Want to give some quick thank yous this week to RetroCDN.net, RetroMags.com, Investopedia, APNews.com, Wikipedia, of course, TheGamer.com, which no longer exists. No, wait, that is GameWeek.com that exists. I'm sure TheGamer.com probably still exists. Indie100.com, CBR.com, Jim Loftus, who wrote the article that I reference uh, quite a bit at GameWeek.com, the Sega Fandom Wiki, and The Verge for their interesting article about... Um, the developer of Seaman as well. So I cannot believe that this podcast is already on its eighth official episode and already in August. Uh, everywhere I grew up, whether that was in Florida or Kansas or Missouri, I'm pretty sure we went back to school in August. Uh, so usually that was pretty exciting for me. Like I'm such a school supplies person. Even now as a fully fledged adult, every July they kind of start bringing it out at Target and I'm like, 
it's happening. We're doing this. And I don't need school supplies. And I've successfully stopped myself from buying them the past few years, uh, which has been really great for me because I could go ham. One of my favorite school supplies memories is I had a folder in probably either 99 or 2000. And it had the, um, someone was talking to me about it this week. The baby was also featured on Ally McBeal, but it's like an old GIF. And it was to the begin, like it had that beginning part of like, uh, hooked on a feeling where it's like ooga chaka and then like the baby's dancing it was on Allie McBeal and also I remember just like seeing that on the internet at the time and so uh that baby was on a folder that I used for school in elementary school growing up um so you could say that I had a meme I had a meme folder before meme folders were a thing uh that's pretty much my my greatest hipster claim to fame of the day today in terms of retro gaming Enough about my school supply obsession. <laughs> Let's dig into the top 10 best-selling video games of August 2000. Like I said, this comes from GamePro four months into the future. So December 2000 issue, we found out what the top 10 best-selling games were. And I will go in reverse order and then we'll talk about them a little bit. So the number 10 best-selling game of August 2000 was World Series Baseball 2K1 on the Sega Dreamcast. Coming in at number nine, WWF Smackdown on the PlayStation. Coming in at number eight, NCAA Football 2001 on the PlayStation. Number seven, Spec Ops. If I'm wrong and it's Special Ops, you know, like Special Operations something, please tell me. Write in, tigypod at gmail.com. Tell me what the deal is. Um, and that was available on PlayStation. Number six, we had Driver on the PlayStation. Coming in at number five, we had Tony Hawk's Pro Skater on the PlayStation. Still strong in the rankings despite two coming out very soon. Very excited about that. Coming in at number four, we have Star Wars Episode One Racer on the N64. Number three best-selling game of August 2000 is that jam-packed summer 2K demo disc on the PlayStation. Coming in at number two, Chrono Cross on the PlayStation. And the number one best-selling video game of August 2000 is Madden NFL 2001 on the PlayStation. Very interesting top 10. I noticed there's only one N64 game and only one Dreamcast game on this list. The PlayStation's still popping off. Like, obviously, everybody knows the PS2 is coming, but PlayStation games are still selling. And, you know, as I kind of talk through this with you, I can see that it's because, you know, the, the PlayStation 2 has that backwards compatibility. You're not going to buy something and it's a waste because you're still going to be able to play all your PlayStation games, games on the PS2, which... Pretty huge. I, I wonder if like Nintendo thought about that with the Wii and the GameCube. P probably not. They were probably like, hey, getting these GameCube games on this Wii is the least we can do. But I don't think they were continuing to make extremely great releases towards the end of life of GameCube. But we'll dig into that as we get there in the year 2000 something. But not 2000. The dolphin is still just a beautiful rumor at this time. A beautiful delayed rumor. This begs the question, I too had these notes here without even realizing it, this lead up and the reaction to the Dolphin, which became the GameCube, and the launch of the Dolphin, and the overall reception of the GameCube, is that the reason that Nintendo went so off the wall, so different, so quote, blue ocean strategy with the Wii? If you don't know this economic term, um, I have in my notes, <laughs> you don't have a minor in business, I promise that's not a flex, just like a, a dorky fun fact about your girl here. A blue ocean strategy or like a blue ocean market is, it's kind of the idea of like a blue ocean versus like a red ocean. So if you have like a red ocean, 
excuse my language, there might be like blood in the water. There are other sharks. There are people in that ocean fighting it out. There are people in that market fighting it out. But if you have a blue ocean, that means that nobody else is there. It's something you can really take over and do. And I think that the PS2 like had eye toy stuff, right? But nobody had really dug into complete motion control like the Wii had. So you got to wonder if the execs at Nintendo were like, okay, the next generation of gaming really is that next generation. The graphics are wild. The graphics are huge. Everything looks so realistic. GameCube had these tiny, tiny little discs. PS2 and Xbox had these giant, you know, these fully fledged CD, DVD ROMs that could hold more, do more. So you got to wonder if they were like, all right, this next console, we're shooting for the moon with this one, which is why they went next level with the Wii. I Wikipedia this very briefly. I really dug into it, but I had to stop myself from just really getting in that rabbit hole and figuring it out because we're not there yet, as I mentioned, but I'm excited to get there. Let's now talk a bit about GamePro for August 2000. The cover feature, I know I talked about this in a previous episode of TIGY. GamePro invented their own little fake PS2 logo that they wanted to use for like covering PS2 games. And they feature that fake little PS2 logo three times on this cover, which like you really think they could have made a more accurate mock-up, uh, but it's, v- it's a very bold strategy to just continue using that, but uh, good for them, I guess. The games featured on the cover this month include Dino Crisis 2, Medal of Honor Underground. Those are the big, big cover games. I was about to search if Dino Crisis 2 was about dinosaurs and then notice there is a literal dinosaur on the cover of this week's Game Pro. Thank goodness. They really answered that question for me. Um, I'm excited to learn more about Dino Crisis as we dig in here. This issue has strategy guides for Wild Arms 2, Marvel vs. Capcom 2. Uh, I also learned through looking and digging into this cover that Resident Evil is from Capcom, which is why Jill Valentine is featured here. Jill is top of brain for me because as mentioned previously, I'm playing the Resident Evil 1 remaster for GameCube right now. I'm, I've been thinking about it. I'm excited. I kind of want to pick up the Humble Bundle that's available right now with all the Resident Evil games because I want to play them all. Um, but something, something about playing it on my little wave bird. I am playing it on the Wii. Uh, shout out Nintendo for the backwards compatibility. I'm playing the GameCube game on Wii right now because I'm also playing a lot of Wii Fit, as we know. Uh, there's 62 sneak previews in this episode. GamePro editors have designated their E3 showstoppers including Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid 2 for PS2, Jet Grind Radio for Dreamcast, Driver 2 for PS2, and Dinosaur Planet for N64, which I, for one, was shocked to see this, because according to Nintendo Power, Nintendo had the best showing at E3 this year, and nobody even cared about the PS2. So I don't really know what to believe. We're going to have to see what we can get here. Let us talk about one of my favorite sections, as we know, the letters to and from the editor. The letter from the editor is kind of an interesting one. It seems to kind of just take a pulse on the nervousness that gamers were feeling at this time about waiting for the PS2, not knowing if they should continue to wait for the Dolphin, what it really looks like. And so the letter from the editor this week is honestly pretty nice. It says, hey, there's, quote, nothing but good times ahead. They're calling out the October 26th release date of the PS2 and the fact that 
Sony actually implemented a pre-sell program is what they call it. So 1 million units were available for pre-ordering, pre-selling. And so they're going to be in people's hands as soon as they can get them, as soon as that release date hits. And uh, GamePro says that gamers will be playing, quote, some of the best looking games ever. Love that. It's basically saying if you don't end up snagging a PS2 right away, there are still so many good games on the N64, on the PlayStation, on the Dreamcast that you're going to be okay. It's, it's not the end of the world if you don't immediately get a PS2, which I think we needed to also give this advice to gamers with the PS5. It is not the end of the world. You're still, you still have plenty of good games on the PS4. I can't imagine when I'll get a PS5. Maybe in 20 years, I'll, I'll pick up a PS5. Uh, I have a PS4 now. That's like my newest thing. It's pretty, pretty fancy for me, honestly. And I just got a PSP. I don't have any games, though. If you want to share some games with me, let me know. I have a PO box. I would love them because I just have this PSP and I'm like, look at it. And I can't do anything with it. I digress. Um, some of the highlights of the letters to the editor. This one was very interesting and it was kind of about... Um, the socialization and understanding of video games as it plays into how humans relate to them across the world. To quote this letter here, it says, I've been reading some Korean newspapers and discovered that over there, people die due to heart attacks from playing video games too much, especially fighting games. They go on to ask, how many hours of gameplay do you recommend for an average gamer each day? I need to know because I'm concerned about my health and the health of other gamers around the world, which, you know, it seems silly upon first glance, but it's a good question. You want to know what's happening, uh, how much gaming you should be playing. I think you, you see something in the news, you get a little nervous about it, right? GamePro says here, most spend 12 hours per week on average playing games. They did like a little survey, so you can do the math. Factors that are more likely to contribute to heart trouble include disease, diet, lack of exercise, and GamePro mentions here, the daily stress of living in a politically divided country. There's a lot of factors to heart health, and they do mention here that you can check out AmericanHeart.org for more information about healthy hearts. But it's kind of interesting to see these continued positions and continued oppositions to video gaming in different ways, whether that's violence that happens in video games or people sitting on the couch and playing video games that may be stressful for long periods of time. Um, such an interesting piece of piece of this this time period in terms of media and what people are consuming there. And I actually just read a very interesting article today too um, about online gambling and the rise of that in this day and age. So, you know, there's always another, another interesting piece of the interactive gameplay technology sector that the news can report on. So very interesting one there to the editor here. This was a very interesting gem of the year 2000, as I described it here. Quote, I think that The Matrix would make a great video game. Is MGM going to make a Matrix game for the N64 or PlayStation 2? And what's up, spelled W-H-A-T-Z-U-P. Beautiful. What's up with all the weak N64 games like Pokemon Stadium? Are any good N64 games coming out besides Perfect Dark? Plus, I have a problem. My friend has either lost my PlayStation or gotten it stolen. Should I buy a new one or wait till a PS2 comes out? Excellent questions, good thoughts, good good commentary on this period of time all around. GamePro says, hey, no Matrix game coming from MGM. Pokemon Stadium doesn't suck. There are good N64 games, and you should wait for the PS2, but call your friend out for losing your PlayStation. That was a paraphrase. I um, noticed here, too, there's also an interesting letter to the editor about a game that, um, as it was being released, somebody saw a screenshot of a Nazi enemy and so they bought the game because they're like yo I want to beat up 
Nazis in video games. Like, that's sick. It's a tale as old as time. They talked about playing Castle Wolfenstein and having that same notion. And then they learned that when they played the game, the particular enemy that they saw did not have, you know, Nazi symbolism of all. They had a rising sun symbol, which, you know, is still not a great symbol in terms of things. But uh, GamePro really dug in here and then also brought up a controversy about Pokemon cards that I hadn't thought about in 20 years. So I wanted to cover it here. Uh, the TLDR that I summarized from this and GamePro's response is that the video game maker, I believe it was, you can tell me if I say this wrong, I'm not offended, Mackin Macon dash X. Uh, GamePro says that they that they changed it from the Nazi symbolism to another symbolism, citing the controversy over perceived Nazi symbolism on a Pokemon card that had to be recalled. Of course I see Pokemon, I have to dig in. I hadn't thought about this in a long time. Quote, Nintendo will stop making a Pokemon card that bears a mirror image, image of a swastika, a symbol with benign meaning in Japan after getting complaints from the Anti-Defamation League. This article is from 20 years ago, by the way, from AP News. What's appropriate for one culture may not be for another, Nintendo of America said in a statement. The red mark alongside Pokemon characters Golbat and Ditto was a, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, Manji, Manji, a reverse image of the Nazi swastika. In Japan, the symbol predated Nazis by centuries. I think we've heard of this in other contexts as well. It means good fortune can also represent a Buddhist temple. On street maps, a symbol locates a temple just as a cross stands for a church on American map to kind of give you that context. To American eyes, it was a Nazi swastika and didn't belong in the enormously popular game. Quote, kids shouldn't be finding this in their cards, said 11-year-old Stephen Langsam of somewhere, who came across the card in a $6 pack. This means hate and everybody knows it. So the card was on the Japanese version, was in the Japanese version of the game only, and was imported into the US without Nintendo's approval, the company said. Larry Rosenzweig, I believe, who's Jewish and a director of the Murakami Museum in Japanese Gardens in Delray Beach, Florida, said opposition to the symbol was, quote, misplaced indignation. This has been used throughout Asia for thousands of years. It has nothing whatsoever to do with Nazis or anti-Semitism, he said. Put your indignation into some more productive and appropriate fight. I had completely forgotten about this with Pokemon cards and the Japanese imports of these cards that were not tolerated or perceived well by these American audiences and I think Nintendo probably knew if they weren't importing these cards and didn't approve their being imported so looks like this is also tying into video games in the early 2000s so wanted to wanted to bring that back up because I hadn't thought about that in so 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 long the buyers beware section of GamePro this month is also very interesting. Um, there is quite a bit of drama happening. Um, Armored Core Master of Arena for PlayStation is buggy in two-player mode versus mode, two-player versus mode, and they can't even get someone on the phone from customer support to make it right. They aren't responding to emails. GamePro has like a super principled response. They're like, hey, if you own this game and you're mad about it, send them emails, call them, write them letters. They say here, quote, when you buy a product, you're also paying for customer support and quality assurance. And I wonder myself if every company had those same ideals as more and more folks continued to get into the gaming space, you know, after Nintendo kind of brought video gaming back after Atari drama, um, you know, they continued to bring it back in the 90s, more and more companies are probably getting into it, maybe pivoting from other pieces of technology into gaming. You wonder if quality was maybe dipping for a minute. Um, if you work in the gaming industry and you have thoughts on this, you were working during this time period, please email me, tigypod at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, when you buy a game, are you buying QA? Are you buying customer support also? Let me know. 
Speaking of, you know, what you get when you buy something, someone writes in here saying that they bought a sealed older model Game Shark from a game store locally to them, and it stopped working a week later. Interact, who makes the Game Shark, they won't replace it since it's an older model and it's been discontinued. Game Pro's like, yep, doesn't have a warranty, out of warranty, make sure you buy a new one. So also a question here, is there a mod chip available that will enable me to play American PlayStation games on my Japanese PS2? GamePro says a mod chip hasn't been developed yet, but there's another way. You can swap game CDs in order to play imported games, but you have to take apart the system to accomplish this. I googled this. I'm very curious. I might reach out to a source I have that was in gaming at this time to kind of see what they know about it because I'm so curious. I was like, maybe I can find a YouTube video. And I'm like, yeah, maybe if YouTube existed in 2000. But alas, no luck with that for now. Just information about mod chips that do exist now, obviously. So the pro news section has all of the dates we've been dying for about the PS2. The big highlight, or excuse me, headline is PlayStation 2, October 26th, $299. Same price as the PS1 launch, uh, as we all know, uh, from our deep dive into the very first E3 in 1995, which is very exciting. As mentioned earlier, Sony's only going to ship 1 million PS2s by the holiday season, most of those available via pre-sale and pre-order. Which, you know, is an interesting choice because as we talked about the PS2 launch in Japan in some of our earlier episodes, 900,000 were sold in the first two weeks in Japan in that March launch. So Sony predicted also that 51 launch titles would be available to North American consumers with the PS2 launch, which they say is the most launch titles available ever. Huge. They're quoted as saying that the PS2 is, quote, not the future of video game entertainment, end quote. It is, quote, the future of entertainment period. Uh, folks are still digging into the internet access piece of the PS2. GamePro predicts that there will be pay-to-play games, pay-to-view t- pay TV shows and movies, DLC for games, etc., saying the PS2 could replace your VCR, stereo, and computer, not to mention your old PlayStation. Dang. Uh, the Japanese launch version of the PS2 didn't include the expansion slot and the drive bay, which GamePro also speculates here maybe why there's a limited stock of PS2s that are going to be available to the North American market at launch, because they said, oh, geez, we want to make this console into a bigger thing, your little internet machine. We need to add these additional pieces that we don't have in the Japanese version. So that's also interesting, too, when you think about the uh, Japanese imported PS2s not having those expansion pieces. Um, you know, you pay an extra 300 or more dollars to get your uh, PS2 imported from Japan, and then you don't even have the latest and greatest version. But they also mention here, the American PS2 will also have the DVD decoder built in, and it's not going to be this little driver that exists on the memory card. So, you know, there's less likelihood of that driver getting erased or written over, whatever that looks like. But you don't get a free memory card like you do with the Japanese PS2. So sorry, everybody, to break this news to you 20 years later. 22 years later? Yeah, just about 22. <laughs> Nintendo has Space World um, happening this month, which I'm excited to read about in next month's Nintendo Power. Hopefully they dig in there. I don't think they did it this time around. Um, they're going to share all their hot goss about the Dolphin, the Game Boy Advance. I'm stoked. I have a feeling in my soul that Nintendo will tell us that the Dolphin is the greatest console to ever exist and the Game Boy Advance is the greatest handheld to ever exist, which I will say that I do have a very large space in my heart for the Game Boy Advance, especially the Game Boy Advance SP gorgeous piece of technology especially the second gen with the, with the better screen love that i would agree with nintendo in that way for sure then 
We also mentioned here that the president of Sega is stepping down. They say Sega has lost over 77 billion yen, more than 700 million U.S. dollars in 2000 money uh, in two years kind of bonkers. That's a lot. There's there's a lot of question marks there about strategy and what's happening and who we're blaming and what's what's going on there. Can't wait to dig in. It's also a PlayStation emulator for Dreamcast that I learned about here that was displayed at E3. Uh, at the time, it was just kind of a demo where they would ideally have w like four volumes of the quote, Bleamcast, Bleam pack that would emulate PS1 games on the Dreamcast. So you'd load in one of four of these volumes. Each volume could support about 100 different games. So it's not like every volume would support every PS1 game. You'd have to pick up one, uh, they were saying, to be able to play the games that were on that pack. I wikipedia this to kind of dig more into it. Uh, the Bleem cast also worked on an IBM PC. So, you know, the software was compatible between PC and Dreamcast to emulate PS1 games. Kind of sick. Uh, they never ended up actually releasing these discs, these boot discs that they talked about with these big volumes. They ended up releasing individual Bleem cast boot discs for the three most popular games on the PlayStation. Gran Turismo 2, Tekken 3, and Metal Gear Solid. Two days after they started taking pre-orders, Sony sued them for violation of copyright. And Sony actually lost that case in court. The judge rejected their notion that, you know, PlayStation sales will go down because, um, you know, they're emulating this on a Dreamcast. And the judge literally issued a protective order saying, quote, we wanted to protect David from Goliath bonkers. Sony, though, continued to pursue legal action. They actually ran Bleem out of business because they couldn't afford these continued legal fees. A beta build of Bleemcast was leaked, and according to Rob Maher, a Bleemcast dev at the time, the leaked build was only 30% complete and was actually less complete than the builds that they showed at this E3 mentioned here, E3 2000. All three Bleem packs that actually existed and were developed but never released, the big volumes of them, were finally cracked and made available online in December 2009. And I found on Wikipedia a comparison image between the PlayStation graphics playing this PS1 game and this PS1 game being emulated on a Dreamcast. And the graphics difference is actually pretty considerable. So I'm going to post a picture of that on Twitter. You can check it out and see the difference. Kind of wild kind of wild that Sony just kind of ran them out of business uh, with all of that. And the Dreamcast graphics were obviously better. So continuing to say RIP Sega, who comes in to play more with more and more pro news, they added another $50 incentive for folks to sign up for a 30-day free trial of SegaNet. Once you provide proof of Dreamcast ownership and sign up for a month of free online gaming, you literally get $50. So you get 30 days free of SegaNet, you get $50 when you sign up for it, saying that you own a Dreamcast already. Thankfully, they're also developing a ton of random Dreamcast peripherals to support more and more nonsense. They're including a DVD player in their mix, mouse, camera, MP3 player. I actually saw a really funny tweet that was like, yeah, you could do Zoom on the Dreamcast too. They have like a webcam and a microphone. Love it. Uh, more info on SegaNet as well. They obviously had a huge presence at E3. They're trying to beef it up. Over a dozen games with online capabilities were showcased and it will all be ready to go in September. 
that's coming up quick, dog. I'm really excited. Uh, some highlights from the 12 games that they featured here that I wanted to dig into. Quake 3 Arena with Dreamcast exclusive levels and a redesigned user interface. Dang. 4x4 Evolution. Cross-platform gaming, which was very interesting to me. You'll be able to play on PC, Mac, and Dreamcast, all of you playing online together at the same time. The 56K modem that they have featured as well as part of the Dreamcast is only a temporary solution for the Dreamcast internet access. And that an Ethernet add-on is coming more peripherals please what we need is more dreamcast peripherals and thank god sega is giving it to us they're also developing voice over ip voip with a company called InnoMedia. uh you better buy that microphone add-on for the game we will mention later in our deep dive as well as internet calling and possibly talking to your friends while you game fantasy star online with voice access might be a little bit better they also keep showing images and a uh What's it called? The term, I think it's Booth Babe, uh, for this game, Space Channel 5, that I actually do need now. Um, it looks really, really good. <laughs> Dino Crisis 2, as I mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm learning a lot about this game. Oh, there's an ad for Seaman in here, which I'm really excited about. I, I want this game so bad. But Game Pro had an exclusive coverage piece here of Dino Crisis 2 that came out on the PlayStation. And it sounds like I definitely do need to play Dino Crisis 1 first. But they mentioned that the game has, quote, jazzy tunes, survival horror with dinosaurs. Love, love, love that. The graphics look decent as well. But, you know, they always look a little beefed up in these magazines. When I checked eBay, Dino Crisis 1 with a case and manual was maybe 60 bucks. So that means the disc only is much cheaper. I, I might be in. We'll see what happens. They also mentioned a PC game here that I love and want called Star Trek Voyager Elite Force. I'm a total Trekkie. We'll talk more about Star Trek later as we get into the deep dive. Spoiler alert. Um, and I'm so, so, so excited. This looks really good. It looks like I can get a copy of this for like $10 online. It's a Star Trek game that has like, you know, it's, it's based on Star Trek Voyager piece of the Star Trek universe. And it has like first person shooter elements. All this is happening. But then also it has like this storyline and all these things happening. And it just looks so good. I'm really excited. I really want to get it. 10 bucks. I can afford 10 bucks. I bought Gary's mod the other day for 10 bucks and I've had a really good time with that. So the next big section of GamePro, as mentioned on the cover, is their E3 showstopper section. I have, you know, they mention a lot, a lot, a lot of games here. I have my own highlights here for what I thought was most interesting. Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty on PS2 available in fall 2001. How will it play? Is it worth a year of waiting? Time will tell. Uh, GamePro seems optimistic, but, you know, they do mention that, you know, when you see a demo, you don't know if that's actually going to be what you get. Uh, spoiler alert, it sold 500,000 copies in the first two days of its U.S. release, 680,000 in the first five days, and it won Game of the Year. So good for Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid 2. All these words kind of run together. Excite bite, we've all been there. Gran Turismo 2000, which later became Gran Turismo 3, as we all know, uh, hopefully is less buggy than Gran Turismo 2. No shade, mild shade, but no huge shade. They also call out Jet Grind Radio on the Dreamcast, which looks excellent. Um, I'm pretty sure it's related to Jet Set. Radio Future, right? I'm not wild. Um, it's the same like skating moment. Uh, GamePro's comments here were very interesting. They said, quote, let's hope Sega stays on tracks and successfully combines entertaining gameplay with today's street philosophy. Okay, for sure, for sure, for sure. They also have 18-wheeler American Pro Truck 
American Pro Trucker on Dreamcast, which I am very into. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast or on stream. Got very into a bus driving simulator uh, in the summer of 2020. So I, I would love to, to play a trucking simulator. 20 ton cargo hauling truck and a cross country race to become the number one trucker in America. Uh, you basically go from New York City to San Francisco in four stages and there are rival truckers coming after you. They also need to stop talking about Half-Life on the Dreamcast because my heart breaks more and more every time. It hurts. It's painful. I don't want to hear about it. They say when the immersive, multi-award-winning first-person shooter and adventure comes to Dreamcast this summer, it promises to have all the gameplay and graphics of the PC version. (sighs) Ouch. Plus the uh, extra bonus content in terms of Half-Life Blue Shift. Which we did thankfully get. I'm a little furious that even though the PS2 port of Half-Life came out, they haven't released the co-op campaign on PC. Like if they put that on Steam, even five bucks. If you could do either Couch or um, like It Takes Two style. It Takes Two is like a newer game that came out that's awesome. Where you could be two people in two places playing the co-op together. Valve, I'll pay for it, bestie. Um, Valve, if you're listening to this, Valve... Give the people what they want. Release the co-op campaign on the PS2 port of Half-Life. Release it on Steam. I dare you. This is a dare. You can't back down from a dare. That's legally binding, I think. I mentioned it in the previous issue episode. Samba de Amigo with uh, Morocco peripherals, which that sounds like it's what the Dreamcast needs. More peripherals. So why not add some maracas to the mix? Because it's not like you're ever going to use that for anything else, which is now making me think about the Donkey Kong bongo peripherals that I do want. Thank you, Dreamcast. They call out Dinosaur Planet on the N64, calling it a far-flung sci-fi epic, saying, who says the N64 is headed for extinction? Bessie, I'm so sorry to tell you that this will never be on the N64. It'll never even technically be on the Dolphin because it just gets turned into something else. I also learned about a similar fate for Resident Evil Zero on N64, which I'd never heard of before. This is a prequel, they say, to the OG Resident Evil. Uh, You can alternate between two characters, but both are susceptible to attack at any time. And if either of those characters is killed, the game ends. Bonkers. Um, You know, spoiler alert here, too, with kind of how everything shook out for late-stage N64 games. Turns out this never actually came out on the N64 because they had memory storage problems. You know, you have a cartridge versus a disc. Even if it's a tiny, tiny little GameCube disc, you're still going to get more bang for your buck there. And so they ended up moving the project to GameCube. And, um, you know, it's interesting because... I was like, what about Majora's Mask? Like Majora's Mask was still pretty lit and it came out. They were using a lot of the same development as Ocarina of Time. And with the memory expansion being kind of mandatory for it, they were able to get away with doing a little bit more. But, you know, it sounds like Dinosaur Planet, Resident Evil Zero, that stuff was never going to be really feasible for the N64, which kind of stinks. I found like a graphics comparison on Wikipedia and I love the N64 graphics. Like we all know that. And like the GameCube graphics are fine. They're not like the nicest graphics in the world, but there's just something about those N64 graphics that we missed out on with the movement to the GameCube. And they confirmed that they were changing platforms from N64 to Dolphin in September 2000. Now we're going to talk more about N64 heavy hitters. One of them never makes it, Eternal Darkness, which, you know, I still am dying to play on GameCube. But they do talk about Majora's Mask as well as Conker's Bad Fur Day. And they talk about Hey You Pikachu, Mario Tennis, great stuff. I am so excited to play Hey You Pikachu. I'm going to 
I'm going to yell at that sweet little boy in the best way. Nice yelling. Like, hey, you, you sweet, you sweet boy that I'm obviously biased towards. I have your, uh, polygon form permanently on my body. Love ya. Also, they talk, you know, about PC titles here, and I have the hypothetical yet, I would love to know if anybody actually knows, question, how many Star Wars video games exist? My god, there are so many. We'll dig more into this with Nintendo Power 2. They have a really, really small, tiny feature here, an honorable mention that I wanted to honorably mention here on the podcast. A little game called Halo, uh, which they say... Uh, you know, they throw it into PC, which I was always like, I thought Halo was being developed and prepared to release on Mac, but it's scheduled to be available the first quarter of 2001. And, you know, they just have this tiny little screenshot uh, published by Bungie. Let's go Bungie. Very, very interesting. It, it makes it, is this the first appearance of Halo in GamePro? I wonder how many more will shape up as that game kind of takes on a new life with uh, Bill Gates by their side. You know what I'm saying? The standout pro reviews this issue are Marvel vs. Capcom 2 on the Dreamcast, which has very, very high ratings, Space Channel 5, the game that I mentioned for Dreamcast, the sick retro future Y2K visuals. It gets pretty decent reviews, and I desperately want this game. What I did get confused by with these pro reviews is the sports game landscape, who all was doing it, how many people were making sports games, and why, and how, and who was buying them. Um, Obviously, we saw in the top 10 best-selling games of this month that the number one best-selling game of August 2000 was Madden NFL 2001 on the PlayStation. So I'm just so confused. I listed them all here. There are pro reviews for Madden NFL 2001 on PlayStation, which will be available on PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, and 64, developed and published by EA Sports. There's also NFL NFL Game Day 2001, developed by Red Zone Interactive, published by 989 Sports, available on PS1 only. There's also NFL Blitz 2001, developed and published by Midway Home Entertainment, released on PS1, N64, and Dreamcast. What's happening here? Who and why and what? And obviously one of these was any good. Were the other ones good? Is it just the Madden name that makes people just scoop up an NFL game? I have a question here. Should I get Mario Tennis? Uh, More sports. NCAA Football 2001, which I believe was on our top 10 list, developed by Tiburon, tell me if I'm wrong, published by EA Sports on the PS1. NCAA Game Breaker 2001, developed by Red Zone, published by 989 Sports on the PS1. This confusing sports situation sums up mostly what I got from GamePro from this month, August 2000, which means it is break time before we dig into Nintendo Power for August 2000. So, so, so excited. It's a really fun issue, and I'm so stoked for our deep dive. Keep it locked. You're listening to Today and Gaming Yesterday. I'm your host, Emma Pearl, and I cannot wait to see you when we get back from break. See you in a sec. Welcome back to Today in Gaming Yesterday. I'm your host, Emma Pearl. This episode is all about August 2000. We just dug into GamePro. Now it is time for Nintendo Power for August 2000. Cover story, Mario Tennis. Still stoked about it. The Player's Pulse this month, which is the letters to the editor, is all about Nintendo character crossovers that folks have noticed across Nintendo games, meaning like Mario shows up in Kirby. I could not begin to go into these with you because there are about 800 million of them. And 
uh, that's just that's just too many to mention. But uh, the readers of Nintendo Power are extremely observant, unless some of these are fake. Oh no, I just opened that can of worms for myself, huh? Didn't I? There's a new section of Nintendo Power this month called Nintendo Power Online. I guess it may not be new. They they announced it a few episodes, issues ago, right? I wanted to dig into the continuing to be confusing website strategy and online presence of Nintendo and Nintendo Power. There are so many Nintendo websites. Why? I don't know. I've complained about this before. I'm going to continue digging this hole. I'm not done. Uh, Nintendo.com and Nintendopower.com apparently link to the same place, which actually isn't true. They mentioned that here, but I guess they do eventually. Uh, and researching this and getting images for my thumbnail image for this episode for the YouTube release, I, f I went to Nintendopower.com and I looked at the archive of that. I found one from August and it is like just very barely any content. It's basically just redirecting you back to the Nintendo Power magazine and then says, hey, you can go to Nintendo.com if you want. Um, and then Nintendo.com had like a little bit more there. Uh, quote, every month you'll read about the new official Nintendo sites. Why? Um, they talk about specific sites and then they go into a listing of sites. One site that I did find extremely interesting that I wanted to talk about, because I want to know if you're listening to this podcast as someone that gamed or is interested in gaming or was gaming in the early 2000s did you ever participate in camp hyrule that nintendo put on did you if you did tell me everything i need to know i need to need to need to know it looks so interesting and fun i wish i would have known about this because i love it if you don't know what i'm talking about it is camphyrule.com it happens every summer like starting in the late 90s going on through the 2000s until it got a little too popular it's like a week-long competition that they kind of Bill is like a summer camp with cabins and you get points and there are people that win. I looked into it on Wikipedia. It launched in 1995. And so when you sign up to participate, you have to sign up ahead of time. You get assigned to a cabin and you earn points for your cabin by playing games, uh, doing Photoshop competitions. Are you kidding me? And the cabin with the most points, like I said, wins a prize. And this looks so fun. Um, you can actually play all of the Camp Hyrule games. They've been archived on archive.org. So if you're wondering what I'm doing on vacation when I'm not obsessed with the game Cult of the Lamb, which I played for probably eight hours yesterday, I digress, um, I want to play some Camp Hyrule games. As a kid that was mostly stuck at home all summer, like once I was old enough to kind of fend for myself, my parents just left me home alone all summer. Like they weren't having anybody watch me. Uh, this would have made my life. This would have been so much fun. I wish I would have known about this. Um, if I get a time machine, you can write this down. You can, you can put this on my Wikipedia page. Um, I don't have one yet. When I do, you can put this on there. If I had a time machine, the first thing I would do is go back in time and know about Camp Hyrule uh, during my formative years where I was a kid alone with access to a computer and the internet all summer long. So much RuneScape. If you participated in this, literally t tell me. I need you to tell me. T-I-G-Y-Pod at gmail.com. I'll probably put out an all dog alert on Twitter as well. I'm dying to know. I'm dying to know. Sounds so fun. Okay, so I'm getting reflustered thinking about websites and Nintendo. Uh, the sites section of this, they talk about StarCraft64.com. They talk about GameBoy.com. They talk about Kirby64.com, which has Flash and QuickTime activities. I know you're excited. I am. Uh, there's actually an area that I really do like, and I wish, I want to see if I can access it. 
<laughs> there's a dancing Kirby area where you design a Kirby dance and then you can email it to your friend. I, not that I had that many friends at this period of time, all of them would have been annoyed by constant Kirby dances. I, maybe they would send some back. I would love to receive a custom Kirby dance from my friend um, from Nintendo. <sighs> this is me getting reflustered looking at this list and I'm going to read them all out to you. So let's pretend that you are a successful video game company called Nintendo and you're, you're told about the internet in the mid nineties and you're like, I'm in dude. And then the late nineties happened. The early two thousands have struck. The internet is probably not a fad. What's, what's your strategy? Is your strategy to have Nintendo.com, which then links out to everything and has a clean, consistent URL of Nintendo.com slash something slash something else? Is it? It's not. Here's the list that I got um, from Nintendo Power, August 2000, their Nintendo website list. But if you need more, every month NintendoPower.com will tell you about the new Nintendo website. So get stoked. Let's just dig into it. Banjo-Kazooie.com, BionicCommando.com. Banjo and Kazooie needs a dash, but Bionic Commando doesn't, whatever. CarringtonInstitute.com, Nintendo.com slash N64 slash CC site, S-I-T-E. That is the website for the game Command and Conquer. Datadyne.com, that is another perfect dark tie-in website, much like Carrington Institute. DKR.com for Diddy Kong Racing. Donkey Kong64.com. Excitebike64.com. Funtography.com. I don't know what that is. I forgot to look it up. I'm so sorry. F0X.com. No, no dashes. Nintendo.com slash GoldenEye2000. <laughs> GoldenEye007. Not Nintendo.com slash N64 slash GoldenEye007. 007? No. JetForceGemini.com. Zelda64.com, which makes a lot of sense to me because I kept wondering and seeing everywhere people talking about Zelda64, which is Ocarina of Time, because I guess, you know, they didn't know Majora's Mask was coming, but this makes total sense now, much unlike this website list. MarioGolf.net. Okay, certainly. CampHyrule.com. We will make an exception. That is allowed. MarioParty.com. MarioParty2.com, Nintendo.com slash N64 slash New Tetris, Nintendo.com, NintendoPower.com, NintendoSports.com, PerfectDark.com, Pokemon.com, PokemonSnap.com, PokemonStadium.com, RidgeRacer64.com, StarFox64.com, SWRacer.N64.com, Cool. Star Wars game, they can kind of do their own thing, right? No. Rogue.nintendo.com for Star Wars Rogue Squadron. Smashbros.com. Yoshistory.com. And the new sites that are being announced. Gameboy.com. Gameboy.com slash Crystalis. Gameboy.com slash Warlocked. Kirby64.com. PokemonCardGB.com, StarCraft64.com, WarioLand3.com. So we have quite a few different, is the word nomenclature? Am I making words up? Probably. Words mean nothing to me now because this is so confusing. There's SWRacer.N64.com for Star Wars Episode One Racer. Very high selling game. But Rogue.Nintendo.com for Star Wars Rogue Squadron. Why? But then there's also 
every N64 game has something something 64.com, but then there's also nintendo.com slash N64 slash game. I don't understand. I'm never going to understand. I can't wait to see how this shakes out. I'm, I don't want to say I'm like hate watching the website strategy, but I, I hate it for one, but that's okay. Don't worry, Nintendo. I'm sure you worked it out, hopefully. Uh, Mario Tennis, again, it looks great. Welcome, Waluigi. Welcome to this world. I hope you get your own website called waluigi.nintendo.com or mariotennis.net slash n64 slash waluigi dash tennis. Like, I can't wait to see what they come up with for you. Uh, there's a quote here. Finally, Luigi gets his very own arch rival. Like Wario is to Mario, Waluigi is to Luigi. In his debut, the wiry, mustachioed villain emerges as a menace to tennis with his skilled technique on the court. Perhaps the only thing more unwieldy than his smash returns is his clumsy name, which, believe it or not, comes from a rearrangement of the world word that I'm going to butcher. Iggy Waluigi? Digiwaluigi, which is a Japanese term for someone who is bad, that they flip the letters around, it is Waluigi. They have an interview with a couple of the devs behind Mario Tennis talking about coming up with Waluigi, and I can't tell if it's just the unhidden and unabashed misogyny of video gaming during this era, or it's lost in translation somehow that they really don't mean this so meanly and so blatantly talking about women are only valuable when they're good looking uh quote they thought about developing girlfriends for wario and waluigi for mixed doubles type situation of mario tennis but quote no one wants to see their girlfriends all right cool uh there's thankfully to add to my level of confusion and frustration another n64 game out on the prowl um nfl quarterback club 2001 we needed more uh, I have in here, StarCraft 64 looks kind of dope. I can get a fake cartridge on uh, eBay for $37 and a genuine for $80. Just a cart, no manual, no box. Uh, I am very well versed in fake Nintendo cartridges after buying a fake Nintendo cartridge and paying full price for it, thankfully getting a refund. But sheesh, that's how I can just tell. Like even just like looking at a picture of a fake cartridge, I'm like, yeah, that's fake. Um, There's a secret character for Tony Hawk's Pro Skater for N64 I never knew about, who actually continues to kind of find their way through the series, Private Carrera, quote, a woman who boasts max out stats in every department. That is sick. Um, and Googling around for this is trying to be like, who's Carrera? Were they a dev on the game? And she wanted to become a character in the game with maxed out stats. Like, who is she? Uh, I found an article that mentions a little bit about how much Tony Hawk makes from these games. Uh, from Indie100.com, quote, as his fourth game was being released in 2002, Tony Hawk Pro Skater 4, he learned that while his other three games were doing well, the first game, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1, was the most profitable. And Tony Hawk mentions here that at one point he went to a lunch with, you know, one of the execs from, from the video game folks he's working with, and they handed him a check for four million U.S. dollars. And that was just the annual royalties. Like, they're like, here's here's this year's check, Tony. Um, but it was cool, though, because in the article they mentioned, or he mentions, too, that, like, making these video games, which, you know, he never thought would be as big as it was, but making these video games enabled him to not focus so much on doing these competitions where he would make money. Um, he could, like, you know, be more thoughtful and more intentional about how he spent his time and his efforts and his skill as a skateboarder, which is kind of really cool to think about. Um, Tony Hawk, if you're listening to this, love you, dude. 
disappointed with the NFTs, but love you. Love you, dude. I, I saw your appearance on an episode of Deal or No Deal while I was getting my nails done a few weeks ago, and it really made my day. Um, so thank you for that, Tony. Let's talk about the Pokey Center. Uh, more details on gold and silver. Exciting. You set the clock, you set the time, and then you also set the day of the week, which we received a very impassioned, incredible email about this from... Alex, Alex Ware, someone that's part of my Twitch community, incredible chatter, incredible knowledge about Pokemon. I'm so, so excited to, to tell you all about everything that Alex shared with me here. Alex says, longtime chatter, first time emailer, in your June 2000 Nintendo Power Review, you mentioned Pokemon weekly events in gold and silver, and if Pokemon still uses a similar system in games, the time-based system. So here's, <laughs> naturally, here's a too long email about it. I love it. Uh, we'll dig into mostly the gold and crystal, but then also like some TLDR that I thought was interesting. In gold and crystal, there was the weak siblings. There were the weak siblings, W-E-E-K siblings, who would give you a certain type enhancing item on a given day of the week. There were many other events based on certain days of the week, such as the bug catching contest and different songs on the Pokegear music channel to change Pokemon encounter rates. Bonkers. The game also introduced the morning day night cycle, which allowed for certain Pokemon to show up at certain times of day and for Pokemon to evolve at certain times of day, like Espeon and Umbreon. I never knew that. I think I've told y'all my, my Pokemon knowledge is not super vast all the time because my brain can only hold so much, but kind of stopped. I never beat silver. Maybe, maybe this is my time. Um, Alex has very excellent knowledge too about gen three and gen four, meaning Ruby, Sapphire, and then diamond, pearl, platinum talking about times of day. Um, it seems like Alex also mentions here that in gen five, which is black, white and black to white two, um, they introduce seasons which were never seen again, but it's kind of interesting. I've never played those games, obviously. Day-night cycle and daily quests are still around, but weekly quests may be on the way out. Alex says, time-based events have been a Pokemon staple and the variations over the generations have been great. Generations two and five did the most towards adding value to playing the game on different days of the week or months, but the value has decreased over the years. Generation nine should be interesting for the future of time-based events. I'm excited. I'm, I'm Alex, your email has gotten me extra stoked for new Pokemon games, which I haven't felt in a while. I think Arceus kind of did that for me, which I still haven't also beaten. Write me an angry email if you want anyone about how I haven't beaten Arceus. Um, Cult of the Lamb is so good though. I digress. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for this incredible email. Thank you for the support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to write in. We have another email too um, from an awesome person that also is part of my Twitch community, Reen, and I'm excited to dig into it, but it's about uh, PS1 and PS2. And should I buy a PS1 or should I buy a PS2? Ooh, Reen, know that I've read your email. I love it. Thank you for writing in. Thank you to everybody that sends me emails. I absolutely love it. And we're going to dig into that as the PS2 gets released here in 2000. Oh, God. There's... There's more websites for me to tell you all about. I know that I know that when you listen to me rattle off all those websites, you were like, EP, there's got to be more. There's got to be more websites. Uh, thankfully, PokeChat digs in and says, Pokemon.com, PokemonSnap.com, PokemonStadium.com, we know. P2K, the movie.com. Spoiler alert, we're going to learn more about Pokemon the Movie 2000, which I have on VHS. I'm going to watch it. Um, and also Wizards.com slash Pokemon. That's trading card game, right? 
They have a preview of Pokemon the Movie 2000, as I just mentioned. They have 50 reasons to see Pokemon the Movie 2000. And there literally are 50 different reasons they give. Some of them are goofier than others. Um, they talk about legendary birds. There's talking Pokemon, Lugia, whatever. Birds, birds, birds. Pokemon galore, of course. You'd expect to see at least a handful more than you would typically expect. New Pokemon cards are coming out. Ancient Mew, so sick. These legendary bird cards are also gorgeous um team rocket reforms lots of new friends that's that's what we come to expect number 38 i will say though is a little bit troubling i'll include a photo of it on my twitter post about this week's episode quote togepi gets executed so if you don't know that that's a Pokemon and you don't know that that's just a pun based on a Pokemon name and you're like eight years old and you may not be the best at reading to understand the difference between executed and executed, you'd be like, cool, I'm going to pay $4. How much did movie tickets cost in 2000? I'm going to pay $4 to go to the movie and watch Togepi be executed. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about this. I, at one point I got my VHS player hooked up to my capture card and I was able to get it through, uh, the video and audio through, uh, my computer. I would like to do that again. I would like to do like a Pokemon, the movie 2000 screening in my discord. That would be really fun. Like a, like an end of summer movie night. Okay. I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm legitimately going to do that. If my mods are listening right now, they're like, EP, you have so many things to do. I know, but this seems fun. Um, they go into some very interesting uh, games here that, uh, for me personally, feel like a fever dream. And those games are on Game Boy Color, and they are related to Austin Powers. There are two games. There's Austin Powers, Oh Behave, and Dr. Evil, Welcome to My Underground Lair. And basically, it's a Game Boy Color game that is emulating something like a PC. And there's, you know, two versions. There's Austin, and there's Dr. Evil. Um, there's mini games, audio clips. You can make notes and print them on the Game Boy printer. Groovy, baby. I wrote in my notes, why am I like this? This is very strange. Um, but some of these graphics are so fun. Fun. Like it says like Austin Powers 2000 and then it has like the uh, flag, is it England, whatever. It's like the, the Windows 95. If you watch my Twitch stream, it's that that Windows logo. It's that and it says Austin Powers 2000. Um, but you know, I'm always, I love a game that features the Game Boy printer. I bought a Game Boy printer not that long ago with some OEM paper. <sighs> Beautiful. I haven't printed anything yet. I've been too scared. And I want to find other paper so I don't use the OEM paper. This Game Boy printer is like in perfect condition. It looks like somebody just took it out of the box and then was like, cool, and then sold it to my video game store, Game Over Video Games. Uh, I go to a location in Austin, Texas. Um, I wanted to mention that I'm thrilled to tell you all too that there is another Mary-Kate and Ashley Game Boy Color game being released. Uh, it also features dog throwing and puzzles. That's what the people want. So the ratings for the games that were released and talked about in this issue of Nintendo Power, the top rated game, shocker, Mario Tennis on N64 has a 9.1, pretty, pretty good rating. The lowest rated game was NASCAR 2000 on the Game Boy Color with a 5.5. I've talked about this and I kind of looked it up like Game Boy Color games cost a solid 25, 30 bucks. And this is in 2000 money. There are so many Game Boy Color games and it sounds like so many of them are bad. So it's very interesting. Like maybe they were just, like I said, super cheap to develop. And then they're like, ship it. 
but then they get very terrible reviews and that's from nintendo power who's like buy games buy games and they're still getting bad reviews so very interesting that is what i took out of nintendo power for this month as mentioned you're listening to today in gaming yesterday my name is emma pearl i am your host and let's take a quick break before this deep dive we're diving with a game called seaman on the sega dreamcast i'm really really stoked I'm so excited to get this with you. Um, let's take that break. I'll see you in a second. Welcome back to Today in Gaming. Yesterday, your source for early 2000s gaming deep dives like this. Uh, my name is Emma Pearl. I'm your host. You can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Emma Pearl here. You can find the podcast on Twitter. T-I-G-Y pod is where you find that. This week, our deep dive is on a very interesting virtual pet game. Seaman on the Sega Dreamcast. You may have heard of this game. You may have seen a screenshot. But it's interesting and I wanted to talk about the virtual pet landscape in general as it exists in the world and at this time. So for a lot of us that grew up in the 90s, 2000s, even maybe the 2010s a little bit, virtual pet games and the concept of virtual pets, it's always been a thing. Like for me, like Neopets is in my consciousness. Tamagotchi's in my consciousness. And there's been inanimate objects and things like a pet rock that's been, quote, a pet, but a virtual pet that you never actually interact with in real life, that you still care about, you you develop a, an affection towards. That's just kind of always been something that's been acceptable to me and something that I've been into. So, you know, it's a creature. You care for it. I feel like I even got very attached to the Pokemon in my party in Pokemon Yellow. This may be a stretch to other people, but I remember feeling very upset. Like, especially when my Pikachu in Pokemon Yellow would faint. I was sad, I was scared, and I kind of noticed this about myself even in this day and age. I'm playing the game Cult of the Lamb, as I've mentioned 80 times on this podcast today, and my followers are very important to me. They are, they're not like virtual pets like a Tamagotchi, but I still care about them. I, I care about these creatures in this virtual world. So if you're a company like Sega, you feel like you need to test the limits. You see, you have a concept, you have an idea. You want to throw things at the wall. You want to see what sticks because you really are up against these behemoths. You're up against Sony. You're up against Nintendo. Microsoft, Bill Gates, the man himself, is knocking on your door saying, hey, we're releasing a console too. You want to just see what's out there and you really want to try to send it on ideas that nobody else has had before. So with that in mind, enter Seaman on the Sega Dreamcast. Let's talk a little bit at first about who developed this game and why and how and what was happening there. Yutaka Ute is uh, how he's referred to here in the US a lot of the time, Saito, so I'll call him Ute a lot of this episode. He is a very multifaceted individual. He's an author, photographer, a guy with really good ideas. Apparently it was his idea to add a speaker to the Wiimote. He's also a game developer. He went to school to study architecture. He found himself very inspired, though, by the game SimCity. You know, there's, there's a lot of architecture and pieces there with that. So it led him to independently develop his own game called The Tower. And he developed that in 1994. It was licensed under the SimCity world and became Sim Tower and released with those family of games. And it was a huge hit. It's kind of like a tower building game where you decide what you want to put in your tower. It's kind of wild. And I, of course, really like the 90s 
aesthetics of that game, so I kind of want to play it. Um, he won a ton of awards for this game, and it kind of led to him digging into this industry and starting his own game company uh, for game development called Vivarium, that I might be pronouncing wrong. If I am, tell me. Uh, one day, Yu was having lunch with a developer he was working on for a new game in this Tower series. And the dev was working on this project also where he was making basically a tropical fish aquarium simulator. And so Yu is like, through every interview that I've read with him, I would love to chat with him sometime just because he seems like a really cool dude. He's, you know, spitballing ideas. He's talking about stuff. And he says, hey, if I was to make an aquarium simulator game like that, it would be out of this world. Um, they put him on the spot. They're like, you know, yeah, what would your game be like then? He's like, oh, uh, the fish would would talk to you in real words. It would face you and you would have conversations with the fish. You know, you wouldn't just feed a fish and it swims around. You talk to the fish. And everybody at the table was like, that is, quote, strange and great. And he was talking about that idea and that situation with his wife. And she's like, that is strange and great. And in his mind... Given the appeal of a wide variety of folks, he knew it was an idea you could take seriously. Because when you think about it, sometimes ideas only make sense and are only good ideas to very small niches of people. So, you know, if a game is only a good idea to game developers, maybe it's not going to be as great of an idea to the general public who may be purchasing this game. But, you know, the fact that his game developer pals thought it was a good idea, his wife with very little skin in the game dev game thought it was a good idea, he said, hey, let's try to run with it. He, when talking about the game with his dev friends, referred to it as Seaman. So that was the code name that actually became the real name. As development kicked off for this game, you was considering making it for the Nintendo 64 DD, which we very briefly mentioned when we talked about Satellaview for the Super Nintendo. Um, and the TLDR of the 64 DD, it's basically an add-on to the very bottom of the Nintendo 64 that was basically a magnetic floppy disk drive peripheral moment. Um, you know, it had some internet elements too, and it did get released, but it was only released in Japan. It wasn't very successful. It's, you know, kind of good that he ended up not making this game for that because it never would have landed. So he developed a prototype for Mac computers, and then he was introduced to the then VP of Sega. He decided to get on board with Sega at the time. He understood that Sony was this behemoth that was just making it happen in the video game world. So it's kind of a more interesting premise to kind of get in with the underdog and see what you can really put together that might potentially topple this giant in the industry. So, you know, he kind of wanted to rise up in that sense, which is a very interesting strategy. Since the game was not originally developed for the console, you know, it took a minute to rework things. About a year and a half, I believe I read, that it took to redevelop Seaman for the Sega Dreamcast. And, you know, it didn't just require that technical work, but when you're playing a game on a PC or on a Mac, a desktop computer versus a controller, the interactivity is a little bit different. You know, with a controller... Sometimes you get a little bit more distracted by your world. There's a little bit more to do with it. So when finding a way to continue to make this game even more interactive, you really dug into the concept of talking and voice recognition and using a microphone. He wanted to encourage more deep focus into the game and provide, you know, that way he mentioned of talking to your virtual pets. So voice recognition in video games was super new at this time. I think a lot of us have heard about like, hey, you Pikachu and how, you know, you'd yell at Pikachu, but he wasn't really understanding you, uh, but that's all right. You know, you was not 
discouraged by that. They relied on some third-party software that they were kind of working with. Um, he remarked that the technical limitations of voice recognition software is probably even the reason that that game was able to come out. Because if software was really, really, really good, he probably would have just continued adding more and more to the game and it would have never been released, just developed forever. It's also very fortunate that, you know, given the landscape of video games at the time, there was limited memory size on a disc, on uh, a, Sega, or a Sega Dreamcast at all. You know, you really had a limit as to what you could do. As mentioned, what made this game the most unique was that it wasn't just recognition and not just saying like, eat or swim or whatever you were saying to your virtual pet. It positioned it from the game's perspective that you had to speak in entire sentences. You were having conversations with your virtual pet. Even if it was only picking up on a few key trigger words, it was taking it as a full sentence. But this did come with challenges because as I'm sure you can tell, listening to a podcast of one person basically just talking to themselves, humans can be very long-winded and say very long sentences. And so there were test players that were playing through this game and they would use very long sentences to try to speak with their virtual pet, the Seaman. When he was too confused by a long sentence, at first he would say, quote, can you say that again? So, you know, people would be like, oh, he just didn't hear me and say their long sentence again. They changed that to, you talk too long, I don't understand. It's a pretty, pretty smart fix to say, too long, I can't hear you, I'm not listening. Gives the player an actual clue about what to say. And so, you know, a commitment to making a game and making it more understandable and conversational was huge for you. And that conversational format, the interactivity, really contributed to the interesting personality of this game. So I think to level set on the creatures themselves, we need to understand the lore of this game, which I need you to buckle up. It's a little bit long. And I feel that this game is actually kind of a historical fiction, which I personally love. So let me tell you about the lore of this game. And as a reminder, this is not true information. In the 1930s, Dr. Jean-Paul, I really meant to look up how to pronounce this French last name, Jean-Paul Gass, Gass? I'm gonna say Gass. If it's wrong, roast me, roast me in the email. Dr. Jean-Paul Gass was a member of a team of French biologists. They were sent to Egypt by the French government to research, quote, omnipotent messengers of the gods. And this was among what was left in the ruins of the third dynasty of Egypt. In March 1932, Dr. Gass meets with a resident that had caught one of these creatures, a seaman. He gets a sample of the seaman eggs and he takes them back to France with him. Unfortunately, he's unable to raise the eggs and they died in his care. He published a thesis about his life's work, speculating that the seaman transfers knowledge across the planet, going through the seas, traveling to distant lands to share essential knowledge with the human, human race. And everybody's like, okay, uh, they thought his work was whack. He didn't have enough evidence as to what he was saying. So nobody believed him. He was fired from his job doing this research and he basically disappeared. There wasn't much evidence of this, but it seems like after his disappearance, he continued his research. But meanwhile, in 1996, the French government created an entire institute based on his theories and his uh, research areas called, quote, Anthrobio-Archaeological Research. So they made their own institute about that, the Anthrobio-Archaeological Research Institute. And this is where the current Seaman research takes place in France. The drama of the lore of Seaman 
1999, parts of Dr. Goss's journal and notes were discovered in Japan, and Professor Kend Kendare Takahashi, in charge of the Japanese branch of the aforementioned French Research Institute, he bred his own seaman eggs in captivity. And then, seaman was presented in aquariums across Japan, and then it led an expedition team off to Egypt to conduct more research of seaman in the wild. That is the lore of this game. Very deep lore. What does a seaman actually look like? Uh, it's in the thumbnail for the YouTube video with this. I can try to describe it to you my best I can here. We'll talk a little bit about the evolution. Because, of course, when you have a fish, it's not just, I don't really understand fish reproduction, but it's safe to assume that it doesn't just pop out as a fully formed fish. So the seaman begins as an unhatched egg, it goes through five evolutionary stages, with the beginning stages lacking a face and lacking the ability to communicate with much substance. Though it's been said by some folks that the gibberish that these beginning stages speak to you is actually phrases and words just played backwards. Things like insults, such as, you're an idiot. It evolves over time to become more fish-like, and then eventually, you know, it, it wants to grow up and resemble a frog. You're provided multiple seaman eggs later on so that you can breed them. But the main, the main seaman that most folks are used to looks like a fish with a human face. And according to a Sega fandom wiki, this face was actually based off of Ute's face himself. I also wanted to note, as we're going through this information, there is a very, very passionate person out there who made this Wikipedia page, the English Wikipedia page for this game, one of the most detailed Wikipedia pages I have ever read in my entire life. Uh, what I'm sharing with you is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this game. So please, if you're very interested in this, if you're interested in the evolution, if you're interested in the lore, check out the Wikipedia page. And whoever wrote this, know that I appreciate your work and your passion. That's like my whole thing. You're crushing it. So the goal of the game is to feed and care for the seaman. You want to give him company because it's hard to grow and evolve when you're in a silo. And so the game mechanics take place in real time. You have to check in with your seaman every single day. And this is done via voice commands. Um, though you do use the controller to control machinery, control temperature and uh, the environment that the seaman is staying in. But you want to talk to him. As the seaman grows, it becomes a little bit more sassy as you're talking. A little bit more dark in humor, which is kind of what led to the cult status of this game. It responds to sentences and topics without really holding anything back, except for its programming, of course. The gameplay via conversation was developed for Japan, so, you know, when they released this game in the U.S. market, they had to do some localization, which took place over the course of nine months and was spearheaded by Sega of America. A very interesting thing there, you know, they have to change up commentary, they have to change up uh, topics regarding sex, politics, slang that's more relevant to the particular U.S. market. And an interesting localization bit I learned is that, you know, in the U.S., if you're from the United States and some other countries similar to the United States, there's this notion of what's your sign, your astrological sign, and then using that information to give attributes to people and kind of not judge them, some people do judge, um, give attributes and conclusions about people based on that sign. But in Japan, the equivalent to that I learned via researching this game would be what's your blood type. So of course I had to look it up for myself. Um, I have type O blood, spoiler alert, you can add that to my Wikipedia page too, uh, which according to this list I found means I'm optimistic, easygoing, I have leadership ability, calm, confident, self-determined, but also cold, unpredictable, insecure, ruthless. 
Woo, that's like a little a little bit more personal than astrology sometimes, right? Kind of depends on the day, I guess, though. Also, in the Japanese version, uh, your seaman would actually look at the content of your saved games that may exist on your memory card or elsewhere and be like, hey, why weren't you hanging out with me? Like, why did you play so much Sonic yesterday? You should have been hanging out with me. Uh, but they did not release that feature in the United States. I don't think people would have been into that. And you recognize that in an interview I read. Thankfully, I will say, throughout the journey of this game, every day, every night, whenever you load up, as you're learning through this game, the narration is provided by none other than Leonard Nimoy, the actor who played Dr. Spock on Star Trek, the original series. May he rest in peace, live long and prosper. Really incredible to get Leonard Nimoy. And you was mentioned as saying he thought about folks like James Earl Jones. Like he really wanted a commanding notable, powerful voice to bring you through the journey of this game, which I think is really sick. So did this game save Sega? Did this wild creation that Sega took a chance on, did it save Sega? Did it drive peripheral sales? Because, you know, to talk to it, you need the Sega microphone that plugs in through the controller. You know, not quite. Probably didn't save the Dreamcast, probably didn't save Sega, but it did get decent reviews and it sold fairly well but it did take a while to get up to that point. I found on the internet archive an interview for gameweek.com from the year 2000, right around E3 this time, you'd said the following about Seaman's initial release. Quote, the market for a title like this was not there, so we had to go out and create it. At the time, early 1999, he's talking about the Japanese release, we had no real competitors in the virtual pet category, except for Sony's robotic dog, which was very expensive. In Japan, no one was interested in Seaman when it was first released. When I say no one, I mean no one. Distribution guys, shop owners, consumers, they were just not interested. GamePro ended up giving this game a 4.5 out of 5. The game sold 399,342 copies in Japan, making it the third best-selling Dreamcast game in the region at the time. The game was later ported to PS2 in Japan and sold 305,632 copies as of November 2008. The game was recognized by lots of different places and folks and uh, media pieces for innovative character design and gameplay. And it was recognized as one of Game Informer's top 10 weirdest games of all time. But people still like it. They released a Christmas expansion in Japan in 1999. You can look up some images of your seaman with a Santa situation happening. And you mentioned in this article, too, that there were plans to use SegaNet's networking capabilities to make the game even more interactive. But obviously, that did not pan out. Not sure if that's, you know, just Sega in general or coming from any deficiencies with SegaNet. I haven't really gotten there yet. I've been saving that content for myself for sure. But, you know, there were more ideas and there's more that could be done in this world. And there was a sequel actually released for this game, I believe, um, in Japan only. So I must ask again, did this game save Sega? Maybe not for sure. Um, when asked about the future of Sega, this is again from the 2000 interview, you said the following. I signed on as a member of the advisory board at Sega of Japan. From that point of view, I can see that Sega is going to have a hard time changing its direction. You know, he was asked about the future of Sega in this interview. The game industry is now changing a lot. Even if you have 10 times faster processing speed, such as the PlayStation 2, for example, that doesn't guarantee you a good game. CPU power and gaming is different. Take chess, for instance. You don't need a gorgeous graphics to play chess. It's just a great game. Three-dimensional graphics are nice, but people are getting bored, I think, with it. A new concept is very much sought after in Japan. A few companies have approached us and told us they're looking for new dimensions in gameplay, new concepts. If a publisher can be flexible and take some chances, there are some diamonds in the rough. So, you know, based on that information, 
the hindsight of 20 years later, Sega had its own challenges, independent of Seaman. But Seaman definitely has helped the Dreamcast live on for a bit longer through its cult-like status and its exceptionally weird premise, gameplay, main characters. You'd even remarked at the time of this interview that some folks considered Seaman not, you know, a $50, $60, $70 game, but a $250 game because people were buying the Dreamcast just to try this game out, which is pretty sick on its own. I don't think Sega minded that either. In an interview with The Verge, more recent than 20 years ago, Ute was noted as saying, at the beginning of the Seaman project, I firmly decided it would be the opposite of conventional games in three respects. It wouldn't be cute. It would look into the gamer's world from inside the TV. And the theme of conversation would be everyday stuff, not a fantasy world. I was convinced that if I stayed true to these three aspects, it would turn out completely different from any other game. Something different, not often seen. And it sounds like you really hit it out of the park with that one. He accomplished that. Seaman has brought new life to the virtual pet game. It continues to do so. And that life is still felt over 20 years later as folks are still talking about this game, making YouTube videos about this game. I'm talking about this game on my podcast and I desperately want to play this game. So if you're trying to sell me a copy, trying to sell me a microphone, hit me up because Seaman looks like one of those games I don't want to miss out on. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that deep dive. I hope you enjoyed August 2000. You know, summer's wrapping up. The PS2 is coming. Microsoft's still doing their thing out there. The dolphin is approaching, swimming its way on over. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I really enjoyed creating it for you and bringing it to you live from somewhere there are dolphins outside, um, not just consoles hidden in the back room of Nintendo at this day and age. So um, thanks for listening. You can rate, review, subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, as well as subscribe on YouTube. It's a free and easy way to support the pod. As mentioned, my name's Emma Pearl. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Emma Pearl here. You can find the podcast and images from this episode at twitter.com slash TIGY pod. I will catch you next time. Work hard, be nice, have fun, and take care.